Guy just said to me a few seconds ago, every presentation has to have a, a technology moment at the beginning of it, so we've had ours. Um, I'm going to give a slightly different uh, talk today uh, compared to what people have been uh, talking about earlier, but I would like, like everyone else, I would like to pay my respects and thanks to the original inhabitants of this land and their descendants. Um, oh, he's not here at the moment, but especially to Tyrone and his far now. Um, it's an honour to be invited back. I have spoken here before. Uh, I always like coming back to Canberra, and so thank you very much for inviting me. As I tried to say before, it doesn't take very much for me to... Uh, I'll, I'll talk about cow, uh, cook till the cows come home. And, uh, but today I thought I might just... Um, oh, sorry, I should have done this as well. Uh, Guy did mention that I am of the uh, math librarian at the University of Waikato. Since I got taken on for this, uh, for this talk, I have retired. So I am now a gentleman of leisure, <laughs> and I am not... Uh, gainfully employed. I was given a wonderful farewell two months ago and my Maori colleagues told me that it was time that I changed and adopted a Maori uh, way of identifying myself. I previously linked to uh, a mountain or a hill I should say in northeast England where I come from which in fact is the same hill that Cook would do, that Cook would use if he was doing it. Uh, the I would use the same river, the River Tees, as he would have used, uh, except that he came from Yorkshire, and I certainly don't come from Yorkshire. I come from County Durham, best part of England. But I've lived in Aotearoa, New Zealand now for 37 years, and I, as I say, I worked at the University of Waikato. And so nowadays, I'm very proud to be able to say that Pirongia being a volcano just outside Hamilton. Ko Waikato Te Awa, that's my water, my river. Ko, uh, my friends and colleagues of the University of Waikato, Te Hapu, and Ko New Zealand Aotearoa Te Iwi. I'm very honoured to be a New Zealand resident these days. It was the best move I ever made. Australia didn't want me, I should add. <laughs> now, the, the talk I proposed to give was, is really using Cook as the starting point and developing, because what I've always felt is that he had a role as a teacher, and he, he learned that himself from the people who taught him, and he saw the value of then passing on the teaching knowledge. And we have a line and I've called it a linkage, a surveyor's chain of naval maritime surveyors or hydrographers that start with Cook, and in the same way that the Bible sort of goes on about so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so, Cook, I'm saying beget Bly. Bly begat Flinders. Flinders didn't quite begat Parker King, but he caused him to become a, a surveyor. Fitzroy comes into it, and the man I want to finish with is a man called John Lord Stokes, who was operating in both New Zealand and Australian waters in the 1840s, 1850s. So mostly, what I'm trying to do is give uh, an Australian succession, because all of these people 
except really for Fitzroy, operated in Australian waters and were responsible for a huge amount of the early detailed charting of the Australian coastline. But there's a little bit of New Zealand also features, and we also have a side trip to Sierra del Fuego. Um, I don't propose to cover the Dutch and people like Fisher, um, nor the French, such as Baudin, and little one or two other British people. I'm afraid I'm sort of bypassing as well, so don't expect much on bass. So we move to Cook. We start with Cook. And in 1758, he was master of HMS Pembroke, which went off to North America. They were fighting the French, as they were doing for most of the 18th century. And there was a siege of a French uh, fort called Louisbourg. And in August 1758, the French, after a siege of about three months, capitulated, surrendered, and the British moved in. And about five days later, Cook met uh, an army engineer called Samuel Holland, who was using a plane table, surveying tra practice, on the beach outside Louisbourg. Cook was interested in what was going on. He asked what was happening. Samuel Holland offered to teach him what was going on, and Cook had this ability to get people to recognize his talents. And the captain of the ship, the Pembroke, was a man called John Simcoe, and he encouraged Cook and a group of young midshipmen and lieutenants in learning how to become surveyors. I should have added at this point that one of the surveyors, one of the lieutenants, was a man called John Robson. And uh, I've tried like I don't know what to find out if we're related. To this day, I don't know. But um, it, it, it just gives me another linkage with Cook, which I rather like. So Cook learns to become a surveyor. He surveys, for example, the St. Lawrence Ri River in 1759. And this library has got a copy of the chart that was produced. It is one of the most gorgeous things. It really is a work of art. Uh, sadly, it's not in the exhibition. Oh, by the way, can I just congratulate Martin, Susanna, wherever she is, Guy, all the other people that have been involved in the exhibition. I think it's brilliant, so please enjoy that. But anyway, so he does this map of the St. Lawrence, and he does various other things around uh, Nova Scotia. And then in 1760 he goes to the island of Newfoundland and he is the surveyor of Newfoundland and it's interesting at this point because we've been talking about in this uh, so far in a lot of the talks about Cook's relationship with the indigenous people and I believe this is where Cook first encounters indigenous people they are the Beothic people of Newfoundland there are the Mi'kmaq people of Nova Scotia and part of Newfoundland, and there are some Inuit at uh, Labrador. I hope you might have seen the chart of the Labrador coast that's in the room, and that was an occasion where Cook did meet Inuit people. So he was starting to meet indigenous people at this point. Can I just now do a completely different thing? We've heard about Cook and his people at Endeavour River. 
and how they took the turtles, much to the disgust of the local people. So can I, Alberta, make a little bit of retribution? <coughs> can I offer you that as a gift? Thank you. A pleasure. I just thought it was about time that somebody did a little bit to pay back. <laughs> So anyway, this is the, the ch part of the chart that Cook did of St. Lawrence River. And as I say, it is a, a wonderful, <coughs> marvellous chart. And this is within about uh, two years of him learning how to be a surveyor cartographer. It is a, a fantastic thing. And as I say, Cook, having learned to become a surveyor, it puts into him the need to pass on the knowledge, the skills of surveying, cartography, etc to the young men that work under him. So by the time he's coming to the Pacific, uh, he's using all sorts of uh, strategies for doing his charting. Uh, this is a, a chart. This is uh, north has suddenly gone round to the right. This is what Cook called the New Hebrides, what we now call Vanuatu. He did this using a technique called running survey and he did that in just a few weeks, making landfall about three places. It really is one of the pieces of uh, early chart work. Cook so quickly developed the skills, etc., to produce these wonderful charts. <coughs> but uh, he has this Australian connection, and I thought it appropriate to use the Endeavour River chart that. Uh, was engraved and used in the books. Um, <coughs> now, Cook, on his third voyage, had the resolution, and one of uh, the crew, the master, was a guy called William Bly, who at this stage wasn't famous, but uh, he was only 22, but he was already a master, which in fact was the, the highest level of a non-commissioned officer in the Navy. He was in charge of effectively running the ship on a day-to-day -day basis. He was only 22. So he obviously had something about him. There was obviously uh, ability and skill, etc. What I can't really establish is whether he was already a skilled cartographer surveyor when he joined the resolution, or whether it was through Cook's teaching that he became uh, one, or whether Cook helped to just modify his skills. But anyway, Bly also had a character that didn't get on well with other people. I mean, this comes out later with the Bounty Voyage. But on the resolution, he obviously fell foul of the, the man who ended up taking over the ship, a guy called James King, who everybody else loved, but Bly hated. And King was given the idea, the, the responsibility of writing up the narrative of the third voyage at the end of it, and did not use Bly, but in fact used Bly's deputy, a man called Henry Roberts. So Bly was absolutely put out, and we now have copies of um, charts and narratives where he has annotated this, things like, I drew this map, it wasn't Roberts, and, and things of that sort. So he was quite an unhappy man quite early in his life. But, 
This is uh, a chart from the third voyage, and we do know that Bly was responsible for the original of this, if not for the finished product. So he was already, as I said, he was a very skilled cartographer surveyor. Then, of course, he has the, the, the terrible thing of the bounty voyage, where everything goes wrong off the island of Tafur in Tonga. And they go to, in an open boat, 18 people, and they go across the Pacific 7,000 kilometers in an open boat, which is, even by itself, is an absolutely wonderful piece of uh, navigating and everything. But in the midst of it, he goes through part of the Fiji Islands, and he charts them as he's doing that. They're, they're on the base point of dying, etc., etc., and he is still finding time to produce charts. So he obviously had certain qualities about him. After the, the disaster of the, sec of the Redford voyage, he go gets back to England eventually, and a bit later he's given command of a second voyage to, get, to carry out the task. And on this occasion, his ship is called the Providence, this time, he's given a second ship as a security thing. Uh, just to add that another of Cook's um, young gentlemen, a guy called Nathaniel Portlock, was in command of the assistant, and he produced charts as well in the course of this voyage. And here we have this linkage coming through because a midshipman on Providence was called Matthew Flinders. And this is where I think Flinders developed his skill, his interest in surveying and uh, everything that that involved. Of course, Bly then has a, a further uh, career where he serves at the Battle of Copenhagen with, with a certain amount of glory. Nelson thought highly of him, um, but he then becomes governor of New South Wales and has a second mutiny. So there was, for all his good qualities, he had quite a lot of uh, poor ones as well. So moving on to Flinders, um, joined the Navy, in, he was a Lincolnshire boy, he joined the Navy in 1789, and as I said before, he uh, was a midshipman on the Providence, where he learnt uh, certain skills, and then he comes to, New to Australia. And round about 1795, 1797, he partners up with George Bass, who I said I wasn't going to talk about. And they come down and they cross the Bass Strait. Uh, and they establish that it is a, a strait. And that's why we call it the Bass Strait. And they also establish that this island, or this land mass, is an island. And for the moment, they're still calling it Van Diemen's Land, which is what uh, Tasman and Fisher had done um, so many years earlier. Um, but, as I said, doing it in this small schooner and a whaleboat, so it's another example of wonderful surveying uh, done in very hard conditions, etc. With that <coughs> reputation, Flinders goes back to Britain, and he's given charge of a little bomb vessel, which is then renamed the investigator and he's told that he needs to go back to Australia and do a proper chart of the whole landmass. 
and he does that, he goes off and from 1802 to 1803 he circumnavigates the landmass of uh, of Australia. At this point, of course, it hasn't actually got the name Australia yet. <coughs> it's New Holland still. Um, he's doing it at about the same time that Baudin and Freycinet, uh, the French people, are, are operating in the same area. And in fact, they do meet on occasion. And, but this is a chart that was actually done, I think, about 1826 based on a chart that Flinders did, but really it is the first representation of what we now call Australia, together with the island of Tasmania, what, that would later become Tasmania. And we, I think it's true that Flinders is the person who first puts the word Australia onto a chart uh, of the thing. But, things don't operate particularly well because he leaves Australia, I think he, he tries once to get away the ship, there's something wrong with the ship he goes back, he ends up in the schooner, the Cumberland and he heads off across the Indian Ocean and he reaches Mauritius where for some reason the governor of Mauritius imprisons him and keeps him there for about seven years on trumped up charges uh, it absolutely ruins Flinders' health. It also means that the French effectively get back to Europe and talk about what they've achieved long before he can get back. But eventually he does reach Britain again, but as I say, his, his health is absolutely shot, and he dies in 1814. Uh, he'd written up a narrative of his expedition around Australia. He dies on the same day it gets published somewhat ironic situation. Philip Parker King came from a, a naval family. His father was governor of um, Norfolk Island, for example, and he, according to family tradition, Matthew Flinders was a friend of the family and encouraged Parker King to become, to join the Navy and to actually do surveying. Now, the British Navy, during the 18th century, was not particularly interested in charts. If people wanted charts, they were basically expected to do them themselves. Uh, there wasn't a central repository, um, and in fact, most ship's captains couldn't do a chart to save their lives. So there wasn't, a, and, and if you did do one, as I say, you had to, and you wanted it published, you had to pay for it. If you wanted one, you bought it. But eventually, the British copied the French and the Dutch, and they created the Hydrographic Office. And that opened in 1795, with a man called Alexander Dalrymple in charge. Now, he wasn't a, a particularly a, a Royal Navy person, but he was interested in maps, and he'd done books about the South Pacific and things of that sort. So he was actually a very competent man, but his tenure comes to an end, and a man called Thomas Hurd takes over as the hydrographer to the Admiralty, and he's the first naval uh, man in the position, and it's he that teaches Parker King and encourages him 
into becoming a surveyor. And King, in 1817, comes to Australia. This is a, a, a map that I copied off the internet, and you can see that he just went round and round and round Australia, charting the, the coastline. All the time, these people are adding to the existing um, set of knowledge. And, you know, what he was doing was equally good. He was a very competent and uh, very good surveyor. He's in Britain in 1826. He's given charge of a ship called the Adventure, which has a companion boat, which you may have heard called the Beagle. And they are sent to the bottom end of South America to chart this region. The South America at the time has, is in a, a state of turmoil. You've got the results of the Napoleonic Wars, which has left the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, somewhat in a mess. The colonies in South America are all starting to rise up and seek independence and etc. And the British and the French see the opportunity for potential exploitation and they decide that the time has come, they need to come down to this area and get good charts etc. so that they can move in and deal with the people of South America. And so in 1826 the two ships come down to this area uh, and Parker King is in charge of the adventure and they spend about three years in the region and produce a whole set of wonderful charts. Um, I will just mention, I'm coming back to him, a man called Robert Fitzroy and another man called John Lord Stokes, but we'll come back to them in a moment. They are both part of this expedition. Um, so, as I said, he, oh, sorry, that's, we'll, we'll just keep on Parker King. After the, in 1830, he effectively gives up his active naval career. He moves back to Australia, and he becomes a member of the Legislative Council of New South Wales and a commissioner for the Australian Agricultural Company. At some point, he's living in Port Stephens. He also has property outside uh, Sydney. Um, and he's advising <coughs> people on uh, surveying and things of that sort. And he even sort of gets commissions and he comes across to uh, New Zealand at one point and does some, a, a little survey there. So he's, he's semi-retired, but he has a huge effect on people around him. And one of these people is a man called Robert Fitzroy, who had taken over in charge of the Beagle on the first voyage to South America because the <coughs> man who was commanding it had committed suicide. He cut his throat. Uh, the conditions were so terrible. The storms, the rain and everything was so t terrible that the commander just gave up and committed suicide. Fitzroy is given the position of taking over and he goes, one of the things that he does, uh, it's one of these very debatable actions, uh, he takes four Fuegans back to Britain. The whole idea being that he will educate them so that they can then converse and take civilization back to um, Tierra del Fuego. So they get back to Britain in 1830, and he's expecting a second voyage to take them back to Tierra del Fuego. For a while, that stopped, but then the Admiralty relent, and 
a second voyage for the Beagle is planned, and you've all heard of this voyage, I think, because Fitzroy asks for a naturalist on board, and the naturalist that he gets is Charles Darwin. And so the second voyage of the Beagle, and it has this man, John Lord Stokes, on board, is the one that has Charles Darwin on board. Now, it's a, everybody knows it because of Charles Darwin, but in fact, the proper purpose of the voyage was continuing the survey, both of the Chilean coast and the, Ar the Argentine coast. Um, and they even go up, and this is the Galapagos Islands off Ecuador, which they charted as well. This man, Fitzroy, is a strange character. He, uh, he later becomes governor of New Zealand. Um, he has a terrible time. He's not exactly the easiest person to work with. Um, the, the British people, whatever you want to call them, that are already in, in New Zealand don't like him because he, a lot of the time he was siding with Maori people. Um, but uh, he gets kicked out. But he goes back. One thing that he does, weather forecasts. He starts weather forecasts in Britain. Uh, and in fact, very recently, a few years ago, they've, uh, one of the shipping forecast areas was renamed Fitzroy after him. But, like the man who took over before, he commits suicide in about 1865, I think it was. But he was a very good cartographer, very good cartographer. But as commander of the ship, he delegates a lot of the work to a man called John Lord Stokes, who is this guy. This is John Lord Stokes as an old man. He had joined the Beagle in 1825. He spent 18 years on this same ship in South American waters. And after the second voyage, the third voyage of the Beagle, they come to Australia. He's second in command when they come to Australia. But this is an example of the charting that he was doing in uh, South America. This is a, a river the, the, um, the east coast of South America is over here, and they walked up this river for about 25 days, and Stokes did the charting of that. So he was a very competent, from a very early age, competent surveyor. But going back to the, on this second voyage, the Beagle voyage, Stokes and Darwin shared the cabin at the back of the boat. And this is the cabin. This is the chart table up here, this huge area. Darwin slept over in the top corner. Stokes slept just over here on the right. And Philip Parker King's son, Philip Gidley King, slept on the right. There were three of them. But they, they spent five years living together in this cabin. And Stokes and Darwin became very good friends. And so when the Beagle comes to Australia in the 1840s and they venture up to the very northwest, uh, northern coast of Australia. They come to an inlet which they call Port Darwin. So Darwin in Northern Territory is named through this connection here. But these are some of the, uh, the charts that Stokes did of Australia. The one on the top left is the bottom end of the Gulf of Carpentaria, 
And one of the things that Stokes was doing on this particular voyage, whereas Flinders and Parker King had largely just done the coast, Stokes and the people on this voyage, the Beagle, were taking little boats and, and walking up these rivers because they felt that there was the possibility of <coughs> an inland sea or that there was fertile land, etc., and they wanted to find it. Um, Stokes called this little bit of area the Plains of Promise. He was convinced that there was still something in there, even though all of the, the rivers that they, they went up effectively came to nothing. Stokes then goes back to, um, to Britain, and then in 1848 he's given charge of another ship, a steam, steam vessel by this point, called the Acheron, and they come and the idea is that they will survey New Zealand. And what they do over the next couple of years is the first scientific, you might call it, proper survey of New Zealand. They nearly finished it when they get summons back to, uh, to Britain. Stokes is one of these people that he probably would have had a much more illustrious career, but he's tended to speak his mind. And when he got recalled, he told them what he thought of them, so he never really got any further in the Admiralty, in, in the Royal Navy. <laughs> but having been recalled from New Zealand, they had to wait in Sydney for a while for a ship to take them back to Britain. And he, in that time, he did a survey of the New South Wales coast. So this is one of the, the, the best uh, and detail, early detailed uh, maps of the New South Wales coast. But these are two of maps showing the legacy of John Lord Stokes. Uh, Australia on the left, you might recognise, and New Zealand. All the maps of New Zealand up until this point are quite distorted. Uh, the, the interior, the, sorry, the, the South Island, Te Waino, Te Waikonamu, is usually too, too thin, etc. But by this point, we're getting a true representation. Sadly, Stokes is, uh, is, it's interesting, walking from the hotel to here, I'm going past Flinders Street and Bly Street and everything like that, but Stokes doesn't get a look in, which is very sad. <laughs> um, but he wasn't even then finished with Australia because he then made representations to the Royal Geographical Society suggesting that um, there needed to be an interior expedition that crossed from the west coast through the centre of Australia. Um, and he was given, he, he was expecting to lead it. The Duke of Northumberland, who was the colonial secretary, expected him to lead it. And then the Admiralty said, no, you can't go. So he didn't actually do it. And Augustus Gregory led an expedition in his stead. But to, in a way, to come full circle, Stokes, as I said, we had this line from Cook through Bly, Flinders, Parker King, Fitzroy, to John Lord Stokes. John Lord Stokes was quite open that his hero was James Cook. And so sailing up the west coast of Te Waikonamu in 1851, he sees, that, uh, sees this particular mountain from the other side, not from this side, and he named it Mount Cook, now known more properly as Araki Mount Cook. 
And uh, that's it, thank you. If anyone has any questions. Thank you, very interesting. Given your history you're interested in, having travelled the Pacific for 70 years and realising how big it is, Cook is credited with finding little specks in the middle of nowhere. Did he have prior knowledge that goes back from the history you've just given us, or did he really find those places? And if so, how? Um, I think moving back into the Pacific then, talking about Cook, um, he was using methodology that he'd learned as part of his surveying, etc. But I think he also was using very similar uh, skills that the people of the Pacific were using as well, and watching for the swells of the sea. He was watching for flotsam and jetsam on the water. He was watching birds, if they saw birds, and reckoning, you know, that's probably a land bird. And cloud formations and all sorts of things. So he was using all sorts of things to help him move towards places. Um, probably he was very lucky as well. I, I sort of, I mean, when you think about it, people like Magellan managed to, it's, I sort of think in terms of um, the nucleus and everything, you know, and various electrons that just move all the way through without hitting anything. Magellan and Bougainville and people like that, tend, and Byron, tended to, to go through this huge ocean, and they, would, they really didn't know what they were doing or looking for, and they didn't find anything. Whereas I think Cook had more like, a, again, a, a thing I've used before, it, like, they were like, it was like a pinball machine. He seemed to bounce from one place to another. Um, so he had skill, he used all sorts of skills, he had a lot of luck. Free knowledge? Free knowledge? Well, I mean, the people like uh, Le Maire and Charlton had crossed the Pacific, Magellan had crossed the Pacific, but they hadn't really seen very much. And, and their ability to pinpoint places was not particularly good. I mean, this is um, going back more like a couple of hundred years earlier. You had the, the Spanish Mendania who finds what he calls the Solomon Islands. And when he tries 20 years later, he can't find them because his ability to pinpoint things was just not there. Um, so even sometimes with these people, if they found somewhere, they didn't necessarily know where it was. More questions? <coughs> um, I was wondering if you looked at uh, the uh, various maps and charts that Dalrymple had prepared that they actually took on the Cook voyage where he had concatenated the information from the various Dutch and Spanish and uh, so on uh, uh, explorers. Did 
people hear that? I don't know. The lady was asking about, uh, I, I mentioned Alexander Dalrymple, who would later become the uh, hydrographer of the Navy, but way back in around about 17, late 1760s, 1770s, he had done a lot of work establishing what the Spanish had done, what other people had done in the Pacific, and produced charts that did record everything to that point. Um, so yes, I, I mean, sorry, I have seen them. Um, and Cook would have been aware of, of some of this. Um, Yeah. And of course he was also expecting to uh, uh, command the expedition to the, uh, observe the transit of Venus and that was replaced by Cook. Well he, yeah, uh, he had been one of the people who had been one of the prime movers for the, the transit of Venus voyage, but uh, the Royal Navy effectively said you can't have a civilian in command of the of a Royal Navy ship. And Dalrymple then said, well, if I'm not going in command, I won't go. And the Royal Navy said, good. question here and then one behind. John, can you say something about Cook the man and how he behaved in Australia, what he might have done to what he did do, I think maybe different. Cook the man. Um, so I have long... Thinking about Alberta's uh, turtles, yeah. the way he landed at Bay, yeah. and what he was like. Well, I've long <coughs> berated Joseph Banks um, for all that he perpetuated Cook's myth eventually. If he had done anything about him, he would have written a biography of Cook. Um, the first biography of Cook is written by a man called Kippis, who didn't meet Cook as it was done about five years after Cook dies. Um, and basically, actually, it's not a biography. It's, it's just another retelling of the, of the, the ship's narratives. Um, and it's very poorly researched. I don't think he even talked to Mrs. Cook. So it doesn't offer us anything about Cook, the person. Um, I think uh, we, we know that James Boswell, who was the, the sidekick of Dr. Johnson, met Cook before the third voyage and expressed an interest in going. And uh, Johnson, I think, talked him out of it. I think if Boswell had gone, we would have probably got a description of him as a person uh, that we don't possess from anyone else. Um, so we, we are, we tend to, you know, I think of him as being a very serious man. Um, I don't think, I, I've been quoted on this before, I don't think he would have been the life and soul of the party. I can't imagine him standing there telling jokes and things of that sort. I think he took his job and everything to do with it extremely seriously. I think you've then got to take into account that he didn't have a particularly robust education. Um, in so many things he was self-taught. Then he's put in charge of a ship coming to 
the uh, Pacific. Now, if he'd been master of 400 men ships in the Royal Navy, so he had, and he then looked after a 20, he'd been in total command of a 20-man surveying vessel, so he had leadership skills, he knew how to, to get the best out of men, and I think on the, I think one of his qualities on the, all the voyages was that the men knew he'd come up from the ranks, so if he sent them up the rigging, they knew he'd done it. They knew it was all that he could do it if he had to. So he had certain qualities like that. But like so many people, he was coming into a completely new environment where there was no training for anything like that. And you had then this whole thing of the contact on the shore where you have people coming together with total communication difficulty totally different cultural concepts, etc. Um, that things happened. There's part of me that, that is more surprised that more terrible things didn't happen. Um, it, it, it's very hard to, to really comment too much about it. What, what I think it, uh, he's been, uh, the gentleman's asking about Cook listening to Morton, who was the president of the Royal Society, who sent out these uh, instructions that Cook was meant to, to adhere to in meeting local people. Um, I think he tried to wherever possible, but often events, people with him, I mean, on the, the terrible first incident at, uh, at Gisborne, Monk, you know, somebody tries to pick up a musket and Monkhouse surgeon shoots the, the, the man. Um, so, you know, you can tell people not to do something, not to do something, but suddenly things happen and they blow out and terrible things happen. Um, so I think he tried, but he wasn't always able to control everything. I think we have one last question here. Hello. Um, can you just clarify uh, Cook's titles on his various voyages and how he was addressed? Because I know he was appointed oh, lieutenant. You, you've seen the Herald today. No, I haven't actually. It's a, it's a oh. half page article in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, Cook was on the Grenville up until 1767. He was the master of that vessel. A master was the senior non-commissioned officer on the ship. In fact, on that thing there were no commissioned officers, so he was the master, but he would have been addressed as a courtesy as captain. He then is appointed to go on the Endeavour, and the Endeavour is a much bigger vessel, it's going to hold about 70-odd crew, um, in order to do that, he had to be commissioned. Thankfully for Cook, he had the experience, he had whatever, he passed his lieutenant's commission exam, and so he became a lieutenant. So he was, on the endeavour, Lieutenant Cook. But again, as a courtesy, he would be addressed as captain. At the end of the endeavour voyage, he is promoted to commander. So for the second voyage, he is Commander Cook, again, <coughs> he will be addressed as Captain Cook. On the third, after the second voyage, 
he is promoted. The term is usually called post-captain, but in fact you can reduce it to captain. The Sid Maury Herald thing talks about the difference. There really wasn't a thing. He was captain now, and as such, he would be Captain Cook. If he had come back after the third voyage and he had survived, because he's now got to that level, he would rise up the ranks. All he had to do was keep alive. He would have become an admiral, and he would have, if he'd lived long enough, he could have been admiral of the fleet. Because it wasn't down to ability or anything else. It was just, you just as people died off, you went up. <laughs> so he was courtesy thing, Captain Cook throughout, but he was only Captain Cook in, in reality from the third one. Sorry, if writing about him for the Endeavour voyage, though, in text, for example, should you be writing Lieutenant Cook or Captain Cook? Uh, I think it probably depends on the context. I don't think it would matter if you put Captain Cook. I think if anyone questioned it, I would probably say they were being pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let us all... Let, uh, sorry, we've got to move on to the next uh, talk. Um, please let us all thank John. <laughs>